Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah took his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong. I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abram gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abram circumcised him as God commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abram that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abram held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So we're going to continue learning from Galatians chapter 4, page 9. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that. If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but, not, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. 
Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, break forth and cry aloud, you who are never in labour, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brother and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matilda. Such a strange story there, isn't it? In Genesis uh, 16 and 21. And such a strange application of that story in Genesis chapter, in Galatians chapter 4. Very strange. Uh, but in the end, it's not that complicated. And uh, we'll get to that at the third point of my talk today. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, grant us true joy and freedom that come in Christ our Lord. Joy and freedom that is derived from the gospel, secured by Jesus, received by believing and applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, whom you've given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we move forward in our series in Galatians, meditating here on the relational, psychological, and communal implications of the churches of Galatia, ancient Turkey, when they moved, when they shifted from the gospel of grace to what Paul calls works, or works of the law. So my text today is a meditation on the question Paul asks of the churches of Galatia, namely this in verse 15 of Galatians chapter 4. Verse 15, he says, Where then, where has it gone? Where then is all your blessing of me now? Where has it all gone What happened to it? All the joy and the happiness that you and I shared, Paul says to the churches of Galatia. You had it once, this joy, this blessedness, and then you lost it. You know, when someone who knows you well sends you a text and says, you've changed, man. Well, Paul's saying that to the Galatians here in these verses. It's a tricky little verse to translate, verse 15, where then is your blessing of me now, but the meaning is clear. In the old King James Version, it was, it is, where is then the blessedness you spake of? You used to speak about me in happy ways, but you don't anymore. You've changed, man. Or perhaps the simplest translation 
is the older NIV. What has happened to all your joy? You like that? What has happened to all your joy? And that's a question we could ask ourselves. What's happened to all your joy? Paul says to the Galatians, effectively, you are free, you are happy, you are committed, you are liberated, you are positive towards me, but now you are quite bitter and enslaved and, and angry at Paul and judgmental and critical. So it begs the question, what happens if you used to have joy and you don't have it anymore? How do you find it again? Good question. Now the context, for those of you who are new this Sunday, the Galatian churches have been established by Paul in the first century with what you might call the true Christian apostolic gospel, namely that grace and peace have come from God through Jesus Christ in abundance because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus secured this grace and this shalom, this peace, by his blood shed. He did the work for us. We didn't do the work for him. And what that means is you can't earn salvation, you can't buy it, you don't deserve it. Salvation is a gift from God that's received. It's not a product that's earned or bought or secured by you. Now, I think that's pretty interesting because most people would say, I'm a pretty good person and that's why I'm acceptable in polite society. Whereas the Christian gospel says, no. The Christian gospel says, you're not a good person. Not up against a holy God and not when you're sort of honest about those dark places in your heart. And yet the Christian gospel also says, I was going to say equally, but it says um, with greater emphasis, you're loved by God, divinely loved. And God has shown his love in the life of Jesus Christ. And all you have to do, said Paul, is receive this love. Trust God rather than try to earn your place. Now you might say to yourself, but I'm not a slave. I'm free. Well, Jesus said to people who didn't think they were enslaved, people who thought they were free, in John chapter 8, he says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins, that's me, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then he makes this observation, a slave, if you understand slavery then, has no permanent place in the family. But a son, that's Jesus, belongs to that family forever. So if the son of the father, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you'll be truly free. The churches in Galatia had accepted this message with joy. But some people had come later from Jerusalem to spy on the freedom they appeared to have, and they came in with a subtle change. In fact, so subtle, and you could argue so biblical from the Old Testament, that you could imagine someone saying, what are you so upset about, Paul? It's just not that, it's like just a little theological difference that's going on here. They came in energetically, they came in zealously, they came in with passion, and they said to the churches in Galatia, after Paul had left, they said, you haven't read your Bible correctly. If you read it, the Old Testament, there are Jewish things that you need to do to be part of the covenant, to be acceptable, because that's what the Bible says. They came in and they said, for example, a big one would be circumcision of your boys, and only your boys, by the way, it's very important. Circumcision of your boys as, an ex as a 
sign of the covenant, for example. By the way, they concentrated on that, which is what makes it a shibboleth. I'll come to that in a moment. Circumcision of your boys is one. Certain food laws, and if you have Jewish friends, you know about kosher in their kitchen. Two fridges, right? The Hughes know a lot about the two fridges in your area. And there are holy days and months that are important to observe because God said you should observe them. But what you need to know is that most of the Christians in Galatia, in ancient Turkey, they were not Jewish. They were Gentiles, like me, non-Jewish, like most of you here today. But Paul went in and he said that non-Jews had to simply believe, they had to trust Jesus, they didn't have to do all the Jewish things. And Paul knew this was true because he had a divine revelation Galatians 1 and 2, but we've got even more than that. We've got Jesus saying it, Mark chapter 7, all foods are clean. We've got a demonstration of the Spirit in Acts chapter 10, a dream that Peter received. Don't call what God has called clean, don't call them unclean. The Spirit says of Gentiles. And a decision made by the United Church in Acts chapter 15 said, let's not make it hard for non-Jews by you know, making them go all kosher. And Paul has a way of speaking about this in chapter 2, verse 15, very important. He says, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of Torah, by works of the law, but rather by faith in Jesus Christ. It could even be by the faith of Jesus Christ. He did the work. And so we too have put our faith in the faithful one. We put, have put our faith in Christ Jesus. It was all free, it was all from God, and it was received with joy, like, I, I can't believe it. I'm right with God. That's a turn up for the books. It wasn't obvious, not in a pagan world. Shouldn't even be obvious today. And Paul says, well, hold on, you're giving a voice to these people. You're giving them your ear, and you're going to get your boys circumcised, and your men too. You're, line, you're lining up. And Paul says, why put the chains back on again? Why go back? Verses 12 through 16, you've got something new in Galatians. Paul outlines the relational and psychological impact of this temptation. Look at verse 12. I plead with you, sisters and brothers, become like me, for I became like you. I was a Jew. I became a a Gentile. You need to have my mind again on the matter. You did me no wrong, as you know, Originally, it was because of a particular illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, it wasn't easy. I would have been a burden under every other circumstance. But you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel from God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. The whole dialogue of of grace, me towards you and reciprocated was lubricated with, with joy um, and blessedness. You see that? We have such a history, says Paul. So remember the past. No one knows what the illness was. Well, they can't be sure. Uh, scholars pour through the corpus of Paul to find out what he's talking about. Perhaps he had an eye problem. Verse 15, you would have given your eye. Um, You've torn out your eyes for me. I can testify, verse 15, that if you'd done so, you would have torn out your eyes for them and given them to me. But leaving aside what the illness was, it was a burden. But look at the relational joy that comes from new faith. Verse 14, even though my illness was a trial, you treated me, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were 
Christ Jesus himself. And then, then our question, verse 15, so where then is your blessing of me now? He had so much joy towards me in the past. You can see the relational damage that Paul thinks has been done by this group coming from Jerusalem. And the psychological damage too. You don't have the joy anymore. You've, you've lost the joy. And so we're asking the question tonight, what has happened to all your joy? <laughs> what has happened to all your joy? Might be a question you ask yourself. Maybe not, maybe. I think it's a good question to ask of yourself. Good question for me to ask of myself. And I reckon, if, that, if that's you, a lot of us don't know the answer. Joy is uh, an elusive thing. Um, you can't muster it up in your own mind, page one. I think a lot of us don't even ask the question because we're afraid of not finding an answer. You might say, well, I don't know. I just got older. Things got harder. Or you might say, this happened to me or that happened to me. A tragedy, for example, a diagnosis. Maybe someone left you alone. Or you had an illness or... Um, or maybe you just say, I don't know, I just, uh, I just lost it. Perhaps it was a dashed hope. I thought the joy would come, uh, you know, when I was happily married by the time I was whatever age. Uh, maybe it's a dashed hope like um, I thought, you know, I'll be um, thumbs up when all my kids turn out to be wonderful citizens. <laughs> or maybe it's when I get a holiday or long service leave. It turns out, of course, that the joy was not in them. It was only passing through them. So whatever it was that was your turning point, perhaps you could say now that you've lost the taste a little bit for life. Uh, books don't give you any joy anymore. Nothing on TV. Alcohol holds this promise, but by now you know it doesn't solve the issues. And perhaps, worst of all, church disappoints me. Um, so you don't take joy in singing anymore. You used to have joy in singing. Uh, now you don't, so you sort of criticise the choice or, or the musicians. Perhaps church being a, um, a place where joy is lost is the worst thing of all, precisely because it holds out the hope of joy, whereas TV never did, really. And so church then teases me with something that I can't find. So what I want to do is look at these two dozen verses here and see if there's wisdom. I won't give you every answer, but I'll give you wisdom. And there's three things to write down that I'll briefly break apart. Uh, if you're writing notes, these are the three things. There's space in your zine. Three ways you've lost your joy. Number one, you forgot your testimony, verses 8 through 11. You forgot your testimony. Secondly, you listened to the wrong people. Verses 17 to 20, you gave them a, a voice in your life that you shouldn't have. And thirdly, you chose the wrong narrative out of which to do life. You forgot your testimony, verses 8 to 11. You listened to the wrong people, verses 17 through 20. And you chose the wrong narrative, verses 21 through 31. 
I'll be real brief on these. Firstly, you forgot your testimony. Look at verses 8 through 11. Paul outlines how they came to faith. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You were pagans and you ran after uh, classic pagan religions, which is all about certainty and, and um, turning up to the right place and doing the right things because then maybe uh, the crops will get watered. You were slaves to fear. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. In other words, look at your past, says Paul. Remember your story. Remember the freedom you felt then, formally. Look at how you were liberated when you first believed. I love verse 9, personally. Because you get a glimpse both of the gospel. I get a glimpse of the gospel and of my own experience. But now that you know God, or rather, unknown by God, and only a person who becomes a Christian gets to know what that really means. If you look at that verse and you're perplexed, it might be an indication of something in your heart. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, remember when you were trying to find him, the scrambling and your control and your pagan rituals and guesswork, or remember that he found you. I think I was found at 18 at university, and uh, when I heard the Christian message for the first time, I became a grace junkie, as you know, addicted to the gospel. Up to that point, for whatever reason, I had felt only the heavy hand of God when I heard the gospel I felt his light and lifting hand as well. It was a delight. <laughs> uh, and after that, you couldn't stop me from telling people. It wasn't about gifting. It was about joy. I had a few friends who used to call me the Manning, the Manning Evangelist, if you know the University of Sydney. I think it was mostly about the coffee. I love the testimony of non... John Newton, John Newton, the 19th century slave trader who discovered that he was the slave, ironically. Get that? He wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." You like that? I didn't get that till this morning, and I've been singing that for 30 years. Never noticed it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." Have you got a moment when you were liberated? What year are you in right now? I find what's fascinating about Paul is that turning to the Jewish customs for justification, which was never the plan and purposes of God, is like pagans returning to their own insecure gods. Fascinating. And for us, it could be so many things. Liberated from my own middle-class ethical mind trap. Liberated from success syndrome or self-love, self-hate, self-justification. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, which, by the way, could be today, tonight when you take bread and wine. That's possible. 
So firstly, uh, you forgot your story. Secondly, uh, you listened to the wrong people and you believed their lie that passion equals truth. You bought the Disney lie, holus bolus. Verse 17, these people who's come from Jerusalem, who've told you that you're second class unless you do the works of the Torah, they're zealous, they're passionate, actually. They're very passionate to win you over, but for no good. Okay, so what that means is just because someone's passionate doesn't mean they have the truth. Just because someone's zealous doesn't mean they have the truth. Passion can be spellbinding and zealous can be hard to resist. But look at one possible outcome of zealousness. Tribalism and control. Look at verse 17. Look at the dynamic. What they want, I'll tell you what they want. They want to draw a line and alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. They just want to be loved. And so they're going to... um, draw a line in the sand and ask you to cross it. They're going to put a hoop up in the air and ask you to jump through it. And once you jump through it, you're going to say to them, oh, thank you for telling me about the hoop. Now I feel good about it. And you're going to love the person who came in with this slave mind. You see how it's a spiritual abuse? (laughs) And what's worse is they're using a biblical idea to gain control, (laughs) namely a Jewish marker of circumcision so that you end up loving them more than the person who told you about grace. Some people call this dog whistling. Some people call it a shibboleth. You remember that episode from West Wing, don't you? (laughs) Wikipedia says, a shibboleth is any custom or tradition, particularly a speech pattern, that distinguishes one group from others. A password. And circumcision had become a password, a shibboleth. Do that and we will put our arms around you. you see. But it's tribalism in, in the end. You do my thing, you follow my way. If you're serious about my issue or my program, if you say and do the right things, meaning the things I think are the right things to do and say, then we can be friends. And that's powerful if people are hungry for acceptance. That's why cults work. But it is anti-grace. Amen? It's anti-grace. And Paul reflects on this and he contrasts shibboleth thinking with good old-fashioned grace love. He says, verse 18, it's actually fine to be zealous. I'm not arguing against passion. Perhaps I should, but I'm not. It's fine to be passionate, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. There's got to be integrity in the passion. My dear children, he says, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, says this bloke, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Wow, how I wish I could be with you now and sit with you and eat with you and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. I don't get it. Paul's saying you'll gather around yourself people to listen to. And the truth is, everybody does. We all do. Beware of people who act in ways that seek to control, especially by making people jump through hoops. Do not give them a voice. Do not lend them your ears. Hard to do. 
but rather find people who do speak grace into your life and give them your full attention and let them start to paint on your heart things of joy and beauty, things from God, challenges as well, rather than hoops to jump through. Third and finally, you chose a wrong narrative. What's happened to all your joy? The answer is in verses 21 through 31. <laughs> this strange Hagar-Sarah thing. And he's saying to them, you actually chose the wrong narrative to be a part of. Now clearly, the people who he was speaking to understood the Abraham story and the story of a slave woman, Hagar, and the story of his wife, Sarah. But what Paul is saying is you're embracing the slave woman's story, the slave woman's son. You're taking on the shackles of Torah and placing it not only on yourselves, but on others as well. So the Hagar-Sarah story is a bit weird, no doubt. It's hard to know exactly what Paul is doing here. Allegorizing, perhaps. He himself says these two tracks are to be taken figuratively, which is very risky, of course, and you don't want to do that when interpreting Scripture yourself. This is a classic moment of, kids, don't try this at home. But Paul does it here. He takes this very simple and dark story, this chapter in the Old Testament, to make a point about the two paths that Abraham took. See, God had promised Abraham that he would have a son, and from that son, the world will be saved. And we know that happened through Jesus Christ, a son of Abraham. But Abraham was very old when the promise was made, and his wife Sarah was barren. She had never had a child and couldn't have a child. And God says to them, just believe. Sarah laughs, by the way, when she first hears, uh, more a sneer than anything else. And later, she laughs with... Um, with joy, you know, from the belly, and she calls her son laughter. God said, just believe, that's all you have to do, and watch me fulfill the promises. Watch, watch me do it. Watch me do the work. But here's the key. Abraham wanted to help the gospel along a little bit. He wanted to control the situation. And so he slept with a servant, Hagar, very handmaid's tale, by the way. And they did have a son by that act of control, and that boy was called Ishmael. It's an awful story. It's a dog-awful story. Did you feel it when it was read to you? It's awful. Awful then? Awful in Handmaid's Tale, by the way. But he wasn't the child of the promise. He was the child of works. God takes care of him. But it is of the flesh, meaning Abraham's decision, his actions, his Work, if I could put it, this attempt to control. But Sarah had a child, you know, miraculously, according to the promise, 25 years after the promise was made. And these two stories sum up what I'm saying, says Paul. These two actions, these two narratives that his readers would have understood. Namely, that there's God's gift to Sarah of a child, Isaac, which is according to divine promise to all of grace, and it's a miracle. And it is merely received. You wait for it. Not by works. This, Paul says, corresponds to the Jerusalem that is above. This is God's plan for the future, verse 26. That's one story, one track, one narrative. There's another narrative that's human effort and control to win God's approval, to force his hand, 
control others, and that's by sleeping with Hagar. And look at the dog mess it makes in churches, in life. Paul says this corresponds to the present Jerusalem, <laughs> more connected to the, to, to the Arabians. <laughs> Paul says freedom is when you receive the promise, not when you attempt to control it. Now, the story is unfamiliar to some of us, but it'd be a little bit like me saying, you know the story of the prodigal son, don't you? There's a father with two boys. One boy takes the money, squanders it, sits in the pigsty of his own choices, comes to his senses and returns home to his father, dancing at the grace of God. There's another boy, an, an older son, and the older son is uh, you know, home working and doing the right thing all the time, and when his brother comes home and he's received and accepted, the older brother just goes nuts. You know, I'm a good person. Why does the younger brother who squandered it all get it? And you could say, well, you know, these two stories are two tracks, two narratives, and they correspond to life now. The younger son corresponds to, I don't know, secular, atheist, hipsters, I don't know, who return. Whereas the older brother corresponds to lifelong churchgoers who judge others. And I could say, choose the right narrative. Choose the younger son narrative who enters the party rather than the older brother narrative who stays on the outside. You see how it works? Same sort of thing. Just with a story you're not familiar, or you're not familiar with. So Paul here is saying, be like Abraham when he believed, not like Abraham when he controlled. And how does he conclude? Verse 30, what does the scripture say? And he uses it, get rid of the slave woman and her son. In other words, don't get yourself circumcised and resist the call uh, to do works of the law. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. All in water. Always with the intention of God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I believe this right narrative gives relational health, psychological health, if I enjoy again, and communal health. Who are we together? Why? Because it speaks of a great love without embracing evil. It speaks of great forgiveness while maintaining right and wrong as real categories. In fact, forgiveness can only be given if right and wrong are real categories, absolutes. It speaks of the grace of God and therefore grace in community. And the gospel speaks of grace that embraces us where we are and yet a grace that transforms us to where we need to be. That's why Paul will conclude by saying, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Do it, don't do it, doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so the gospel is the answer and not control. Let's pray. Father, as we receive bread and wine in a few moments' time, Help us to know that we have received, through Christ Jesus, a great love, a justifying love, an all-embracing love. And help us to simply believe this, of course, not just when we receive bread and wine, but each morning, each day, each evening. And then help us to rest there instead of controlling, living out of fear, putting up hoops for others to jump through and drawing lines in the sand.
pray that we might be transformed as a community of grace. We beg you for this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.